Hello, and welcome to the 39th episode of Open Swim, brought to you by the strategy and design teams at Shark and Minnow. I'm Hallie Bram Kogelshot, CEO of Shark and Minnow and your host. And just a little reminder to make sure that you're following Open Swim on Apple Podcasts and subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts, like Spotify or Google Podcasts. Don't forget to send us a review on Apple Podcasts because we want to hear from you on what you'd like to hear us talk about. Before we jump into today's topic, make sure you follow Shark and Minnow on LinkedIn and Instagram at Shark and Minnow to keep up and date with the latest from our company. And today, I'd like to introduce you to the round of panelists that we have talking about our exciting topic. Again, I'm Hallie Bram Kogelschatz, here along with... Eric Kogelschatz. Gina Yonko. And Jack Weir. All right, guys. Is this your first time on the podcast, Gina and Jack? It is. It is. Oh my right. God. Welcome aboard. Glad to have you around the table today. So today we're talking about something that we like to call creative friction. And I'd like to hear a little bit about what creative friction is. So Eric, do you want to talk about how we define creative friction? Yeah, absolutely. So creative friction is the concept of bringing people from different disciplines together. So it's a multidisciplinary approach. And those aspects can be anything from your discipline, such as strategy versus design here at Shark and Minnow. It can also be the department that you might be in. So media arts versus, say, technology. It also can be practice, industry, or sector. So transportation versus education and bringing those people together to think. You can also bring in different functions. So thinking about subject matter like digital transformation versus someone who's an expert in AI. So you're getting all these different perspectives from different uh, mindsets. It, it can also bring in different careers. So the engineer versus a teacher, for example. And another lens would be demographics. So thinking about age, sex, income, and what did those dynamics bring? And then also looking at psychographics, which is ultimately where we want to get to. Because when you bring all these lenses and filters together, it creates a, a new viewpoint for people to share and which gets everyone to a shared mindset or it creates that creative friction to bring in those different perspectives. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. So basically what we're trying to do is unlock new ways of thinking based on how different sectors or different mindsets might come together to approach a problem. So Jack, I'm wondering if you have some thoughts on that. What does this make you think of when we talk about creative friction? Yeah, I think back to like goal setting in a way, because I think for a while, I used to think it was like a goal is like a one-way maze. Like you won't really know how to get there. But I think working here and like kind of learning more about like creative friction and things of that nature, it's kind of like the goal is just a dot on the map. And then obviously, you know, the client kind of sets some boundaries. But like the discussion between our department strategy and the more creative departments in design, emotion, and sound are where that friction happens and where you lay that route out. Things like those conversations like remind me of how we get to our end goal is that creative friction. Absolutely. Jack, you know, it makes me think a little bit. I know you're a big Grateful Dead fan. It makes me think a little bit about like when the dead would go into a jam session and what the different members of the group would bring to the table, you know, like everybody's coming from a different perspective, but they're all coming together to make something together that's new and exciting um, and being put out into the world. So there can be a delicate dance to it. And I think that's that's the fun part. It comes from reading the room a little bit. Like I know, obviously, we're here with Gina and Gina and I have worked on a bunch of projects. I know like Gina's strengths and Gina knows my strengths 
things, and especially she knows my weaknesses. So she kind of <laughs> can help overcome those in a lot of situations because I can have an idea, but I don't have the creative background or lens to really describe that idea in totality where I can kind of just sometimes, for lack of a better word, just spew words to Gina and she helps me come up with this great idea. So it's a little bit about knowing who you're working with. You know, here at Charcomino, we have a really good team, which really helps out to get the most out of each of us. And I think that leads to, you know, really great work for our clients. Yeah, I totally agree, Jack. Another thing that's that's really important to point out is that when people hear the word friction, sometimes they think of something negative. And at Shark and Minnow, we talk about it as a positive, right? Coming at it from different viewpoints. You know, as you've mentioned, there's a lot of trust in the process, right? By knowing your team, knowing everyone's strengths, it gives you the opportunity to kind of like come to the table with a way to offset things that may not be a strength of somebody else's or to come at it with, you know, I know that you typically like to approach the process this way because I've worked with you several times, but what if we were to turn this upside down and do it a different way? Um, and you know, what could we get out of the process by doing it that way? Gina, I'd be curious to hear a little bit about your thoughts on creative friction, you know, coming uh, at it from a design perspective. Right. Yeah. So I'm a designer here at Shark and Minnow, and I just want to kind of talk about the importance of making sure, especially in creative fields and you know, design, motion, and sound, how important it is to collaborate with people outside of the creative field. Because I think, you know, designers get really stuck in their own ways sometimes and their view kind of narrows and that becomes difficult to see other perspectives. So every week the design team has a touch base, which is really helpful. You know, we show each other different projects that we're working on and we kind of get, you know, design feedback. But more importantly, it's really necessary to meet with like strategists, project managers, people in motion and sound and get that outside perspective. That's when, you know, people who are farther away from the project can kind of give their honest and pure feedback. And I think that's really important and causes you to kind of step away from your own work and see other directions that you could go. Absolutely. You know, it kind of reminds me years and years ago, you know, we went out to Palm Springs for an event for TEDx curators. And I was speaking with a curator from a large TEDx event down somewhere in the South. And what she was saying to me was that she found herself really challenged with some of their speakers. And I said, why? And she said, because a lot of our speakers tend to be people that do the speaking circuit. And they're not used to, she didn't call it creative friction, but that's what she was describing, right? This idea that people were used to telling their story in one very myopic way. And when you work with a TEDx curator, part of the value in that is that they're pushing you on your narrative and they're trying to get you to tell the story in a new way and come to it with modern perspectives on why it matters and, you know, what you can offer to the audience through your talk and making it, you know, quote unquote, TED worthy, right? And I found that to be really valuable. The idea as curators that we have value to bring to the table in shaping the narrative and letting it be something different for that stage rather than having speakers just come at it from their tried and true perspective, which I don't know about how many of those listening have done this, but whether you're a brand, a speaker, or you're just telling your own personal narrative, sometimes when you tell that story a million times, it's like you kind of lose the feeling of it and you lose the magic of it. You also lose like what kind of makes it connect with people. You know, it may have been the way that you connect with people 10 years ago, but it might not be the way that you connect with them today. So again, it's a good reminder for all of us, no matter what you do professionally, just to think about what are the ways that we're showing up in the world and telling our own stories. And Gina, I think it's a perfect way of encapsulating that how you think about your role as a designer and like in a professional space every single day with the value of, you know, gaining those different perspectives and shaping the work. So that's really interesting. 
Eric, I think you wanted to pick up a little bit on the comment about music. I love the idea of connecting to like jam bands because in jazz, there's a lot of improvisation that's happening. A lot of that occurs from the instrumentation. So the instrumentation in the setting of creative friction is voices, people from different backgrounds. So really allowing them to come together and, and just be open and as equitable as possible so that those voices are in the room. And if I can just jump back to the idea of, uh, of friction, you know, one discipline that hates friction is user experience. And at Shark and Minnow, we act as UX strategists often. And in that case, you do want a frictionless experience, right, online. And we all have experienced that some way with customer service. You don't want that friction. But in this instance, it's really important to bring those views together. Absolutely. When you understand how creative friction works, it gives you a new perspective on where friction makes sense in the process and where you want to eliminate it. And so there are moments where you know that it can be valuable. You know, for example, we just worked with a client who, a gentleman named Scott Simon, who just wrote a book called Scare Your Soul. And it's all about building a courage practice in your life. And, you know, what I think is really interesting about what he does is he's actually creating, if you think about it, some moments of friction where he's forcing you to get out of your comfort zone. He's forcing you to think about, you know, how you're going to, you know, potentially get out of ruts, go after something that's important to you. And there is friction in that process. He's introducing friction in a very positive way. I don't know if he'd describe it that way, but really that's what I see when I look at it. And when I read the book, which just side note, I, I can't recommend enough um, and, and just published a couple months ago. So highly encourage you to pick it up. So one of the things I'd like to revisit is some specific examples of creative friction. Jack, I'm wondering if we can circle back to you on this. Can you think of a moment recently or over time when you've experienced creative friction and how that's been valuable to you? Yeah, I think to kind of touch base on what when Gina brought up the touch bases, I think in our internal review sessions are very helpful in terms of creative friction because being on the account day to day, you kind of get really not bogged down, but you get really into the weeds with every account that you work on. So sometimes, you know, if we have a video project or if it's a website design or anything of that nature, you know, we have an internal review session to make sure we're covering all the bases and, you know, meet with the leadership team and everyone's brought into one room and we kind of get a bunch of different viewpoints. Obviously, the client's perspective is well represented. The design perspective is well represented. And then we have the the 5,000 foot perspective of what is this saying for the brand and what does this mean? And those sessions, I think, really lead to a lot of our best work because it forces us to kind of see outside of the day-to-day perspective. And I think that's something that I've really grown to appreciate because it's no longer to go back to the music. You know, if someone's really on one and you're going well with the music, you don't really want to interrupt them. Yeah. So like, it's not, it doesn't come from a place of like, oh, we have two ideas that are combining. It's now what is the best idea in the room? That totally changes the conversation when you're working for your client. It's no longer, Eric and I are in an ideation session. We both have an idea we really believe in. Or we, we want to see our own idea. It's, it's not like that. It's more like we're just trying to get the best idea. Eric explains his viewpoints. I explain mine. And then we talk about it as a team is what we think is the best step forward. So those moments, I think I've really grown to appreciate because I know that's not how it always works out. Um, so I think that's where I see the most like creative, positive creative friction in our office. Absolutely. You know, one thing that I'm actually 
is a conscious part of my leadership practice is that here at Shark and Minnow, the team often hears me say that my idea doesn't have to be the best idea in the room. And I stand by that. I think it's really important that when you're in leadership, you have to find ways to guide the conversation, but you have to make space for different viewpoints to not just be surfaced, but to allow ideas to be explored so that you can really see the value in every idea. So Gina, I'm wondering if you can maybe comment on this as well. Can you think of a specific example of when creative friction was valuable to you? Yeah, for sure. I think throughout the design process, there are several stages where creative friction is very helpful. Um, I think at the beginning, when you're in brainstorming sessions, it's really helpful to bring people from all different kinds of backgrounds, interests, expertise together. And with that, people bring in a lot of creative inspiration that maybe I've never seen before that can really, you know, kind of set my thought process about a project on another path that I maybe would never think of. Brainstorming and just seeing that different inspiration and usually, you know, inspiration and different work that people are familiar with are influenced by their interest or their background. So just getting, you know, people who have um, diverse backgrounds to come together is really helpful. Um, And I also think throughout the process, designing a project, when you're actually designing and when you have something visual to show, that's another stage in the process that's extremely helpful to get some feedback on. Because that's when you kind of, people respond a lot to visual things. So for example, logo design process, it's amazing to have creative friction just because you can design a logo 10,000 different ways. You can approach the brand in so many different ways. And sometimes I get stuck in like one direction. So it's really helpful to come together with people. And for example, Eric, I know like we've worked on many brand identity projects together and that process is so helpful. And sometimes you have, you know, this like great idea that I haven't even explored yet. And then that ends up being like the winner. So that can happen at any stage in the process. But I think just continuing to foster creative friction throughout the process is extremely helpful, especially in brand identities. So Eric, I'd love for you to talk about it from your vantage point, having like spent some time in the industry, we'll say, (laughs) and um, also, you know, working as somebody who directs the work through strategy. What is your perspective on creative friction and and where you feel it's valuable in the process? Absolutely. Off of what Gina was saying, that first step of doing research, and there's formal and informal research. With creative friction, there's formal and informal creative friction that can take place. And the best way to think about that is a lot of these interactions that we're having throughout the process, sometimes those are very formal. We have the brainstorm session. Others, you're just walking up to someone and getting feedback. So it's part of that feedback loop. The other way to think about it is, and these are methods within, or methodologies within research, is participatory research and observation. So what we're talking about is when we're actively being participants in creative friction, but then there's all these other moments when you are actually observing what's happening. And Gina, I'm thinking about one of our recent brand identity projects where you were able to participate in some of the research, which normally is not how firms will operate, but we love to kind of shift things around a little bit. And Gina had the chance of really listen to the voice of the customer and pull that into a design. And I can tell you that it accelerates the process. And it's this constant thing that I think about all the time, which is how can we have research and design just evolving together all the time? I I love brand guidelines. And we've talked about this in a different podcast, just kind of the rules of design. But I think with research, it should be 
flexible in changing those all the time, you know, so that they're rooted in the research and what the customers need. So I think there's there's something to the idea of uh, informal versus formal and then participatory versus observation. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, what is sort of an output of having creative friction at the onset of a process is this understanding that, you know, we live in a world where it's possible to have evolving brand assets. And so I remember at the beginning of my career, everything was super boxed in and binary. You'd publish something and that was it. You washed your hands of it. There was really very little room to evolve conceptual work until the next campaign was published. And so now that we live in not just sort of a digital environment, but a real-time environment, you have the ability to really evolve your brand with every touch point and to understand how do we keep pivoting? How do we keep going deeper on what really provides value to our consumers, our customers, our stakeholders? And how does creative friction keep driving us in the right direction? You know, How do we add layers to that? I think that that's really important given the conversation on equity and whatever that means in terms of your brand. I had um, the opportunity recently to attend the National Retail Foundation's Big Show in New York, and I attended a panel with Target, and they were talking about their DE&I initiatives, which have been in place for 17 years, which is really impressive. And when you think about it, that they were doing this in a formalized way 17 years ago, but they talked about how they continue to add layers and what that means and what that looks like, and the fact that with every single collection that comes out with every single display, end caps, et cetera, they're continuing to go deeper on what it means to deliver on that brand promise via a DE&I funnel. Again, you know, the, the way they're doing that is they're polling employees, they're looking at it on a market by market basis, they're creating creative friction with summits in key markets that tend to have a more representation on a certain population. For example, they talked about having a summit with store leaders in Los Angeles around the Latinx market and what that market is looking at. So again, looking at ways to really not just create creative friction, but to encourage it in an evolving way throughout the process and understanding that the work is never done, I think is really important. And that is, I think it speaks to what Eric was saying in terms of kind of that research with a little r and continuing to validate the proof of concept. So, you know, I will say again, you know, with creative friction, it really is a practice. I think for leadership, I think that, you know, when you decide that you're going to open up the floodgates, so to speak, it can be really, really rewarding, but finding ways to create structure within that is important. You know, you've heard us talk on this podcast about the fact that at Shark and Minnow, we have made it a practice. You know, one of the things that we do consistently is we host a monthly cool hunting session where everybody comes together with what's inspired them in the last month. That's really an opportunity for us to open up dialogue and create creative friction around what we see as exciting in the world as individuals. And I will tell you that there have been moments where, you know, someone will surface an idea and you can see like half the team get excited about it and half the team kind of question, like, is that really something we should be into? Should we be interested? Why should we be interested? And I, I like the fact that we're creating that friction and opening up conversation about it because it lets us get to the core as to why certain ideas or pieces of technology work. And it also gives us the opportunity to hear from members of the team that are more or less interested in certain um, ideas 
or platforms. So to me, again, finding ways to create episodic opportunities for conversation and layers, um, I think that will help to really operationalize creative friction. If you're sitting there listening to this podcast and thinking, how do I even get started with this? Like with my team, how do I make it a part of what we're doing on the daily? Maybe give that a go, create some marks on the calendar to at least start the conversation. So I'm hoping that, Eric, you can lead us in the next bit of this dialogue and talk a little bit about what the outcomes are of fostering a workplace where creative friction is real. This can serve as the argue for this at your organization because the benefits are so so strong. So one, it, it creates this environment where everyone can make believe. And as Jack was saying earlier, it allows those people to have the different voices and brainstorming. And that's really... One of the rules of brainstorming is there's no bad ideas. Let's get them all out there. And you need to be able to listen to everyone that's in the room. It results in increased creativity, increased divergent thinking, and all that can ultimately contribute to bottom line. Because with increased creativity, you're going to have new products, new services, new experiences for your customers. And that will really help your organization grow. Um, As Hallie said earlier, just having equity and making sure that's a core aspect of your organization and and part of the ethos. And awareness of that perspective, or perspectives, I should say, and really allowing everyone to be vulnerable. You know, that's a scary thing when you walk into a brainstorm is, you, oh, my idea is not good enough. I'm, I'm too young in my career. I don't want to create conflict. No, everyone is equal. Let's all get our ideas out there. One thing I think is really or at least I'll say for myself was really intimidating when I was early in my career was that I would have like a spark of an idea and I'd come to a brainstorm and I think, oh, I haven't fleshed this out enough. Like this idea that it had to be fully formed and mapped out and I had to have all the answers. When you operationalize creative friction, what you're saying is we don't expect perfection. We don't want perfection in the brainstorming stage. We don't need for everything to be figured out. The idea is that we really want every team member to come to the table with that spark, you know, knowing, hey, there's really something here. And can we use that creative friction to figure out exciting and new ways to interpret that spark? So I think that that's, that's um, really a benefit or a value is coming to the table and really surfacing anything that gets you excited as an individual and allowing the team to say, oh, yeah, but what if, what if, what if, right? Like, that's yeah. how you get to something new. Yeah, I think one thing that we do really well here, and I think it's just a sign of great brainstorming from, I guess, a strategy perspective is when you have team members not realizing how structured brainstorming is, where it's just kind of just going and ideas are coming out of the team naturally. And that's something from the strategy perspective, you kind of have to think about You have to know your team. Like I said earlier, you have to know everyone's weaknesses or if, hey, this person may not be comfortable like sharing ideas in front of the big group or something like that. You have to create those avenues for your team members to be able to share their knowledge. And that's why I kind of say the great brainstorming is when you don't the team members don't even realize how structured this environment is that you kind of created it just seems like it's a natural flowing thing and I think that's something that we've done very well here I mean it's not just one avenue I mean most recently Eric uh, Gina and I were working on something and we had 200 post-it notes all up on a whiteboard <laughs> yeah. yeah or it's just falling you know, you, off the wall yeah, yeah, yeah or you just have you have to run down the whiteboard or it's all digital. I mean, there's so many different avenues to get to your goal. It's about finding, I think, what works best for your team members. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I think an important um, note to, to kind of point out is the importance of kind of leaving your ego um, outside of the room Absolutely. before you, you know, walk into a brainstorm or a critique. I think just remembering that you're all focusing on one goal and you all want to listen to each other, be receptive of everyone's ideas. 
because you are going to get to that outcome that's better than it could ever be if it was just you. And I think with design and visual arts especially, it's kind of hard to kind of separate yourself from the work, especially when people are like giving their honest opinions or, you know, their ideas. Um, it's hard to not feel like offended in a way. Um, yeah. But the importance of just, you know, remembering that we're all working towards the same thing. And I think that just speaks to the passion that you have mm-hmm. for your craft, you know, yeah. so it makes sense. Yeah, I love what you just said, Gina. And I, I just want to make mention of the fact that we actually have a great post on our website. If you're somebody who leads brainstorming sessions at your organization, and you want some tips for how to do this, um, we will drop that URL onto the landing page for this episode so that you can see um, some tips and tricks for ways in which we found success in doing that. So yeah, thanks for mentioning that. I also do think it's really interesting because we have, I mean, again, not to pat ourselves on the back, but we have a really, really wonderful team here at Shark and Minnow, a team that I can honestly say, like, I look forward to seeing every single day. And I think that, you know, over the years, what we've found is that it's not that people don't have an ego in the sense that it's not that they don't have pride in the work and they're not showing up with that pride of ownership. But part of the pride of ownership is that we all own it together. And the idea that all of us are people that care deeply about evolving the work and evolving ourselves. And so I think that's what it looks like in practice is when you are open when you are showing up to conversations in a way that allows for other ideas to enter the process. What that means is that my ego is not fragile. My ego is strong enough that it can welcome other perspectives. And I actually think that's a mark of a truly great and strong and flexible creative team. I think that more so than any experience I've had professionally, this team is one that is constantly looking to innovate and I say that with a big eye, that word gets tossed around a lot, but we're looking to bring new ideas to the table. And when we see something working well, you're continuing to find ways to push it, um, which is an area that creative friction becomes very important in is how do we push it, right? Like talking about that together, looking at data, looking at other creative samples and encouraging one another to really do that research with a little R so that we can come to the table with lots of different examples on what it means to push something and push each other. So I think that's that's a really good point, Gina. At the end of the day, you want to make the decision that's brand right because we all, you know, care about our clients and the work we do with them. So it's instead of, oh, this is Jack's idea. This is, you know, the brand's idea. It's no longer like one person owns the idea. Absolutely. That's really important. And I, I'm sure I've said this at some point on this podcast before, but I remember back to my days working on the corporate side for Saks Fifth Avenue and somebody was talking about why does everybody in retail wear black, right? Well, the whole thing is, it's not about the associate, it's about the customer, right? You're supposed to be a kind of neutral palette, right? And I think it's a little bit different in what we do as consultants because what we do is actually generate ideas. And so while it has to be brand right, you know, we are sort of that kind of infusion of how to get from, you know, the strategy to the concept and bridging that gap, right? So it's not that we're completely invisible, but at the end of the day, my belief at least is that it's not about awards. It's not about seeing that agency when you see the ad. It's about seeing that brand and really feeling that brand presence in the right way. So I agree with you, Jack, you know, really at the end of the day, it does come back 
to allowing that creative friction to really drive the overall strategy. Trust me, over the years, I think we've all felt it. There have been some really great creative ideas that just haven't really landed because they were a little bit off from that brand strategy. But, you know, we keep those in the parking lot. We keep noodling with them. And eventually, maybe there's a way to utilize. So, yeah, a great point there, Jack. All right, so now I'd like to go around the table. Let's start with Jack. Jack, today, what is your bigger boat? Yeah, so my bigger boat is this man named Neil Druckmann. He's the uh, creative director, I believe is his official title, at Naughty Dog. But he produced the game The Last of Us and The Last of Us Part Two and the Uncharted series. But he just got to, to direct the second episode of The Last of Us on HBO. And I just think it's really cool to see, obviously, something he created in the video game world be brought to real life and let him really be a steward of this story. This is a fantastic story. So I just think when companies have belief in their creatives to allow them to do something like that, like because he has no directorial experience. So when companies believe, like I said, in creatives, it, it always kind of gives me a good sign about a project. It's an exciting moment for him and uh, obviously all the people at PlayStation. So I thought that was just a really cool moment this past week. So my bigger boat, I'm going to shout out a really cool designer that we actually got to see at AIGA in Seattle in October. I talked about her a few weeks ago to some of the team, but her name is Kelly Anderson and she is a graphic designer, visual artist, um, and she's kind of doing things in a really unique and new way. So if you're into design, definitely check her out. Um, she works a lot with paper and typography, and she makes like these 3D sculptures that are like really interactive. And she's also experimenting with risograph animations, which are these really cool animations that are made through a risograph printer, and they have like really cool texture. But she also showed one project that I'll end on is this paper record player that she made like wedding invitations for her friends and she presented it at AIGA and the crowd was just in awe. So definitely check her out. She's inspiring and just really refreshing. This episode, I'm going to tag team Hallie and we'll share our bigger boat, which is Shark and Minnow. We're so excited that on July 15th will be our 10th anniversary and that's really a reflection of all the sharks in this room and the sharks outside of the, the studio right now um, and all the work, um, hard work over the last 10 years. And Hallie and I couldn't be more thankful that um, we've reached this milestone um, and it, we couldn't have done it without all of our sharks and sometimes minnows. So thanks for such a great conversation. And I would really welcome anyone that's listening to contribute their thoughts. We'd love to hear from you on social media. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or wherever you like to consume your social media. And join us next time for another exciting episode of Open Swim. Open Swim.